Alright, final chapter. Here's where he's just going to start listing. This is where he just says, okay, now here's your list of do's and don'ts. But remember, these do's and don'ts are in the context of what we already know we should be doing. Some things we're already doing. But the encouragement is not to get on top of it. The encouragement is to rest in Christ so that they become more a part of us. The point is not to behave a certain way, but to remind us that righteous behavior is pleasing to God and we want to please God because we love Him so much because of what He's done for us. That's your motivation. I don't behave to avoid the warning. I live a life that's reflective of Him because I can't help but want to please my greatest love in my life. Most of the time, the hope is that when I'm doing things in my house, I don't serve my wife because I'm afraid of her yelling and screaming and nagging. I serve my wife because I love her and I want her life to be easier, more blessed. It doesn't mean I'm perfect at that, but that's the goal. The main idea of these first six verses is going to give you two exhortations with a motivation. He's going to give you two exhortations with a motivation. First exhortation, brotherly love must continue and do not neglect hospitality. We must love our brothers and sisters in Christ and we must be hospitable to each other. We must be inviting. We must have a spirit of invitation, a spirit of love, a spirit of welcomeness. Why? Because there's times that you might have entertained angels and not even known it. Now, the illusion is back to Abraham, who saw these strangers and invited them in, and he saw something amazing about them, but he didn't get it until later that this is God and two angels. Now, that's not your motivation. Your motivation shouldn't just be, hopefully this time it's angels. <laughs> because notice it's the, and you didn't even know it, which means it's probably not going to have been revealed to you. But the idea is this. When Christ said, if you didn't do it for the least of them, you didn't do it for me. The motivation is, because when you're being hospitable towards people and loving people, it's as if you're being hospitable and loving towards the things of God in heaven. The angels and Christ himself. This is a way to serve him. This is a way to love him. Partly I love other people because I love God. I should also love him because Christ is flowing through me and his love is what I feel for them. And I really, truly love them. But that's part of the motivation. Remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them, and those who were ill-treated as though you too felt tormented. The idea is those who are in prison. Now, this isn't saying don't visit people who are in prison who deserve to be there, because they need to hear the gospel too. But the idea is some of you are suffering in trials to the point that you've been put in prison for your faith. And the temptation was to stay away from them, like Peter at the crucifixion of Christ, who's afraid that if he's associated with that person, you'll be in jail too. And so he says, look, don't avoid those who are in prison because of their faith, because you're afraid that if you're associated with them, you'll be in prison too. You might be. But remember, they're alone. They're suffering. And they're suffering for loving Jesus. That's exactly who they need in their life right now is the other believers. Because it could have been you. And it can be you one day. So love each other 
and then love those of us who are in deepest need. Now, we may not be experienced in prison right now, but there's other needs that we have. We're, we're suffering physical ailments. There's lost loved ones. And he, I think he's just mentioning the greatest trial. The greatest trial. And do it in such a way as if you feel. If you come before a compassionate, merciful high priest, then you visit them as a compassionate, merciful high priest. And then he goes on to the next two warnings. Marriage must be honored among all, and the marriage bed must be kept undefiled. For God will judge sexually immoral people and adulterers. Your conduct must be free from the love of money. Let's stop there. He goes on to marriage. Two warnings. One about sex and one about money. Why? Because these tend to be the two most attractive, gripping, and consuming and destroying things in our cultures. It doesn't matter what period of history and, and what culture you're in. These tend to have the most pull in our lives. The greatest grip in our lives. And the greatest destruction. Now, I'm not saying that's true of every single human. I'm just saying culturally as a whole, these are the two greatest attractions. Or the greatest destruction. And the first one he starts with is sex. Now, here's an interesting If you go through Leviticus, Leviticus teaches you that the way you deal with sex and the way that you treat women says everything about your culture. And the more that you treat sex lightly and abuse it, the closer you are to destruction and the wrath of God. And every single culture that ends in a place where sex is everywhere and it means nothing anymore except for just pleasure, you study every culture in history, they all end in destruction pretty soon. That's the warning for America. But the hope is there's one nation that avoided that trend a couple of times, and that was Israel. And they only avoided it when there was revival. Because Chronicles says, if my people get on their knees, my people, not when the scumbag pagan people in America get on their knees and repent, but when my believers get on their knees and repent of their sins, then I will heal your nation. There's a couple of times in Israel's history where Samuel, specifically, they got on their knees, they repented, and God brought revival. It's the only way to avoid destruction. And so here's the reality. Marriage. Marriage is the greatest, one of the greatest examples of the image of God. Now, this doesn't mean if you're single or if you've never been married that you cannot accurately reflect the marriage of, image of God. Because you can reflect it in, two different, in another way. You can reflect it when men and women in the body of Christ come together in ministry, serving the homeless, or health clinics, or poverty, or Bible studies, or ministries. But I think we would all agree that even in singleness, there's no greater intimacy that people can have than marriage. Now, that doesn't mean every marriage has great intimacy, but that's the closest intimacy that you'll be able to have on this side of heaven doesn't mean that God can't use you. doesn't mean you're not complete in the image of God. It's just the greatest example of two parts of God coming together and becoming one whole. And it's the example used over and over and over again of God and Christ with the church. And so it is how we reflect the image of God, whether in marriage and a binding or a man and a woman, men and women, and ministry. And if you pervert men and women together in ministry through sex or you pervert the marriage image by having an affair, 
then you destroy the image of God and the way it looks to the people in the world. Does that make sense? So, yes, we should always do ministry as men and women, but we also should make every attempt to guard ourselves from not becoming about us together and stop being about us for the world, representing Christ. And so sex is the greatest way to destroy the truth about who God is as the image of God reflecting Him. And then it grips us and destroys us. And it's a warning. Then he talks about um, the adulterers and the sexually immoral. Now the word adultery is basically those who seek self-gratification outside of their marriage. Sexually immoral moral comes from the word pornea, which means those who seek sexual gratification who are not married. So it pretty much covers all the bases. Now what makes it so dangerous? When a man and a woman come together, the whole point was to become one flesh. To serve and sacrifice for each other. So the more they become one flesh in that area, the area that we're the most likely to want to be self-pleasing and we can show self-control and please the other person means that you're more capable of doing that in every other area of your life. If you can't sacrifice and self-control your sexual desires, you're not going to be able to do that very good in other places. I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying if that's the hardest one to control, then it's very unlikely that you're going to do that in other areas. not saying it's impossible, I'm just saying it's unlikely. It's difficult. And so the same thing outside of marriage with pornea. What makes it pornea? has nothing to do with like all these things we think of. It has everything to do when you treat that other person as an object of self-gratification. You can have pornea between a husband and a wife. If the husband and wife are married with each other and they're having sex and all he or she can think about is their own pleasure, that's pornea. That's an affair. Because you're having an affair with your own fantasy of your own pleasure rather than pleasuring your spouse. Okay, And I'm sorry if this makes you uncomfortable because I know we all have different ha- histories and different backgrounds. And that's not my goal. It's to make you uncomfortable. The goal is to help you understand that our entire life is about serving others and sacrificing for them. And if you can't do that in the marriage bed with the one that you're the closest with, the one that you pledged the tightest covenant with of anybody else, and if you can't do that as a single person and the area that's probably going to be the hardest to be self-controlled in, then it's going to be very hard to be self-sacrifice of your self-gratification in every other area of your life. When it comes to food, when it comes to entertainment, when it comes to serving people in ministry and homeless shelters. Are you going to homeless shelters because everybody will think how loving and great you are? Or are you going there because you really want to make their lives better? And that's the idea. If this is, other than your covenant with God, there is no other greater covenant you'll ever have with anybody than the marriage covenant. And if you can't sacrifice and self-serve in that and kill your self-gratification, not that you can't ever be gratified, but gratification comes from when you kill your own gratification and serve the other, and then God rewards you with pleasure. If you can't do it there with the one who lives with you and who you pledge yourself to, then it's going to be hard to do with the strangers. Notice how he never said anything about loving those who are not believers. He said brotherly love. It doesn't mean he doesn't care about 
non-believers. It means that if you can't love the people that you have the most in common because you serve the same God and you've accepted the same redemption, then how are you going to love the people who are pagans that don't even follow the same philosophies and the same God? Does that make sense? He starts with the easiest. This is someone that you loved and you like and you wanted to be with. And if you can't self-kill yourself with them, how are you going to do with the people that you don't like? These are the people that you have the same God and the same philosophy of life. And if you can't love your brothers and sisters, how are you going to love the people you have nothing in common with and don't agree on anything with? Start here. If there's people that you have problems with in the faith, if there's people you have problems with in your marriage, then you start there. You get your backyard cleaned up before you start venturing out into other neighborhoods. That doesn't mean you have to be perfectly cleaned up before you go into other neighborhoods. But here's what I like to say to people. We'll never ever have a perfect marriage. We'll never ever have a perfect church. But can we have a healthy marriage and a healthy church? I mean, there will always be problems. But do we allow the problems to fester like an open wound with never attention and we just put rugs over them? Or do we address the problems and infestations and seek healing? That's healthiness. Does that make sense? I think we can all think of times. We know that nothing's perfect. But we can all think of times where we've covered it up and ignored it and it festered and bled and destroyed things. Verses that we dealt with the wound. And I love what Cy Rogers says. I don't know, you probably never heard of him. He's one of those amazing men that nobody's ever heard of. Um, <laughs> but he used to be homosexual and God redeemed him. And he took that ministry on the road. And he still has the remnants of the speech behavior and the mannerisms and all that kind of stuff. And some people look at him and say, you're God's definition of redemption? Like you still look and sound like you're gay. And he says, I may still have scars from my sins in my life without God, but scars are evidence of healing. And they tell a story about how my healer healed me. At least my wounds are not festering and opening anymore. And that's the goal. I've got scars in my marriage, but God, thank God they're scars. And that's what he's calling you to. So what's the encouragement? You will be judged. I don't know what that judgment is. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but you're going to be held accountable somehow if you defile something so sacred. Verse 5. Your conduct must be free from the love of money, and you must be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you, and I will never abandon you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper and I will not be afraid. But, can, but what can man do to me? Money. He does not say your life must free, be free of all money. He gave Abraham lots of money and never told him to give it all away. Solomon asked for wisdom. God says, I'll give you everything else you could have ever asked for. And never asked Solomon to give it away. Jesus actually had a little bit more money than what we think. The clothing he was wearing was actually the equivalent of a Gianni Versace suit. Okay, if you know how much those are, they're a couple thousand dollars each. Okay, I only know that because when I was in Greece, we walked by a store and I saw the price tag. And I was like, "Holy cow!" <laughs> and then we tried them on, just so we know what two thousand dollars wears like, <laughs> very carefully, because you don't want to damage it and pay for it. Um, they weren't that great. 
Um, <laughs> they were uncomfortable. So, the reality is this. The love of money. Because Solomon ended up loving the money. The rich man loved the money. Because even if you sell everything and give it away from the poor and all you have is a cardboard box, then isn't that money invaluable? Do you need to give that away? The idea is what God has told you to do with your life. If God has blessed you with wealth, here's what Jesus says, use your money to win and influence friends. You know when people like get the swimming pool in their backyard and they complain that everybody in the neighborhood becomes their best friends? Did I use this example? All right. And you complain that everybody in the neighborhood wants to come over to my house and be my friend now, but they're not interested in being my friend. It's just because I got a swimming pool. Hallelujah. That's what Jesus says. Because before you would have had to go door to door to door to door to door and try to nurture a relationship with them. And now your money has went and influenced friends into your backyard. And now you have an audience for the gospel presentation. And you start with not annoying them by knocking on their door. And I'm not, that's not anti-knocking the door. But you know how some people receive that. But you start with an open grill and an open pool. And then you tell them about Jesus. And the open, if you've got a giant van, share. If you've got a giant house, I know somebody has actually a 10-bedroom house. And it's always filled with people that are not their family. Missionaries that are in furlough that don't, can't get a place for the temporary thing. Children that don't want to be, they're abused by their parents or all kinds of stuff. Use your money to win influence friends. If God has blessed you with money, then use it for the kingdom of God. It's when you hold on to and say, mine, or I need, or I will not be happy without this. Or when God decides to come in your life and pluck it all out as easily as he gave it to you, like Job. Job sinned, and he said, God is willy-nilly. Without rhyme or reason, he's unjust. He just gives and takes away for no reason. Sometimes God will give you mansions and lots of money and sometimes He'll take it away. But He does it because He's your good Father who disciplines you. Not because He's random and willy-nilly. And so the love of money. Do you use the money for the kingdom of God or do you use the money for your own gratification or your own promotion? Or, hey, look at me. Like some of the celebrities do. I'll get more friends this way. Now, notice what the motivation, the warning is here. It's actually an encouragement. Sorry. Free from love of money, because you must be content. You know how to be free from love of money? Be content with what God has given you. And you know how to be content with what God has given you? Start your prayers with thanking God for what He's done. Don't start your prayers with what you don't have and what you need and what your suffering is. Start your prayers with praising God for who He is, how He's redeemed you, and what He's given you. This is my, my wife and I are not good at this, but we're getting better. And we made it a goal several years ago before the kids came into our life that we, were gonna, we weren't going to go anywhere in prayer until we started with thankfulness. And it was hard at first because you feel kind of funny saying, thank you God for our furnace, our air conditioner. Because it just feels like, well, yeah, everybody's got one of those. Until your furnace and your, yeah. But that's what you feel like in America. Until your furnace and your air conditioner goes out. 
until you go to the third world country and see what the majority of the world people look like. Until I have a friend from Russia who talks about how the heat's only turned on for one day every month in Russia because they just rotate it through the neighborhoods. And then you begin to realize how much we really truly have. First world problems. If you start there, it allows you to realize what I have is more than enough. And I'm so thankful for that. And because what I have is way more than the majority of the people in the world. And then all of a sudden, your complaints, it helps you weed through the frivolous. And then when you do pray for the sufferings and the trials and that kind of stuff in your life, you still can pray for them. They're still valid wants and desires. But it puts a whole new perspective on it than just, I want, I want, I want, I don't like, I don't like how my life is. That's the key to being free from the love of money. Is being content with what you have, which can only happen if you start with a thankful heart. And if you don't know where to start, go to the Psalms. There's lots of Thanksgiving Psalms in there. There's lots of Thanksgiving Psalms in there. And then he goes on, and here's the second thing he says. How do you do that? Remember, 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 remember. Remember that your God will not abandon you. Why are you not content? Because you think there's something better than Christ out there. Why do you want to keep up with the Joneses? Because the Joneses have something better than Christ. Why do you need the next house? I mean, right now it's not about really iPhones for us and music and movies. For us, it's mostly about how, oh, it'd just be nice to have a garage so I don't have to scrape my car. My house is really nice, but if I just had a garage, or if I just had an extra bedroom so that we wouldn't be so crowded and maybe guests can actually come over, or, oh, yeah, I really like my living room and my kitchen, but if they just opened up to each other, then life would be better. Oh, this couch is really great, but... If I just had a newer, slightly comfortable couch. Right? Because the couch will make your life better than Christ. It's funny, but it's exactly what you think. Because having a garage and not having to scrape snow and ice every single morning is better than having Christ. Because who knows what Christ is doing through scraping snow. You may think, what could he possibly do with that? Maybe it gives you more time to actually spend time in prayer and thinking because if you were inside the car, you'd turn the radio on. And outside, you can't hear it because you want your doors closed so it gets warm in there. Maybe it'll give you an opportunity to stand next to the person who lives next door to you who's scraping their windows too and you never talk to because you're so quickly you get in your house to do your to-do list. There's so many things that God can do. Because Christ is better than whatever else thing we think we need to be happy. So thank God for what you have and ask God to use the trial or the not connected living room and kitchen, the not having a garage, the not having an extra bedroom. I mean, I know a lot of people are like, oh, don't you want a bigger house? Because you've got three girls. But you know the relationships that my three girls are having in the same bedroom that they would not have in three different bedrooms? And they're one year away from all being in the same bed? 
And I think of all... The, I mean, sometimes it's like, just go to sleep. <laughs> As I listen to them. But at the same time, those are memories that they're developing with each other that will make them less at each other during the day and in their future. Yeah, there's some conflicts that come out of that too. But God uses conflicts. There's so many things that we can go on and on and on and say, thankfulness is the key, not more stuff. And we can think of the times that more stuff got in the way. Cable television. Not that television is bad, but I watch television, I watch the internet. But one of the things my wife and I did, we got rid of cable when we got married, so we weren't consumed with the flicking. When we watch internet, the show is over with and you're done. When you got cable, it's like, ah. And then you waste hours. And I'm not saying that you can't have cable television. Listen, this isn't legalism. This isn't the law. I'm just saying if you find it taking you away from the things that matter, then yeah, give it up. That's the whole goal. If it becomes a love, then sacrifice it. If it's not a love, then use it for the kingdom of God. 